Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that Jesus is the light of the world. We thank you for how your spirit shines light as we open your word, shines light in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that this morning, even as we come in from the darkness outside, that we would, in a sense, pull the curtains and let your light in, or that you might remind us who you are and who we are, that we have something firm to stand upon and push up on when we pray. And so, Lord, open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. Lord, bless us and teach us your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is really an incredible opportunity this semester. As we talk about prayer, we have so many different windows into prayer, different people, different situations, different kinds of prayers. And it's an incredible opportunity for us to see God's people and at times even our Lord Jesus himself praying. But I want to remind you, we don't just want to admire these people or these prayers from a distance, like, you know, paintings in a museum. But by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we actually want to grow in our communion with God through prayer. So that's the goal. So think about what we have before us this morning in Genesis 18. We have one of the most significant characters in the Bible, Abraham. We have one of the most wicked places in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah. And therefore, we have one of the most interesting prayers in the Bible from thousands of years ago as Abraham prays for these cities. So take your hand out or take your Bible. We're looking at Genesis 18, 16 through 33. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, not, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to the Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in our time together this morning, 
this really amazing passage, I want to try to answer three questions. What are the foundations of prayer? How do we pray in the face of great evil? And how do we pray to a God who is both perfect love and perfect holiness? So if we start with what are the foundations of prayer, we're talking about upon what foundation do we build a prayer life? In the summertime, uh, I swim a lot with my boys, Will and John, and so we jump in the pool, and a lot of times we end up at the deeper end of the pool. I can stand up, they can't. They can maybe climb out, but they don't really want to, and they get tired, and so we play this game called the elevator game, where they're kind of holding onto the side, and I swim down under and kind of flatten myself out so they can stand on my back, and as I kind of rise up and hope to find air eventually, (laughs) they push up and can get out of the pool. So I go up like an elevator, I give them something solid to stand on, and they can push off. So in a similar way, we need a foundation in prayer. When we're sinking, when life is difficult, upon what do we stand? And the clearest answer is the character of God. Maybe you've heard before A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes to mind when you think about God? I know recently Mark Davis has used the phrase, do we make much of God? As we think about God, is it, is it a great and glorious God that we think about? We may know a lot about God, but do we really know him personally, experientially? We, we may know a lot about God in a doctrinal sense, but what's true about God is it also real to us so that in prayer we lean on it, we stand on it, we push down upon it. What are the things about God that are true that we know are true, but maybe aren't real to us? And so that doesn't really inform or shape our prayer life. This matters deeply. You can think about so many examples in scripture, but I'll just give you two this morning. Think about what these things are saying about God and how the reality of who he is gives us this foundation to stand upon and then push down upon. Think about Matthew 6, 9, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. From the Lord's prayer, what we talked about just on Sunday in our sermon, do we really believe that God is our perfect father, that he desires to give good gifts to his children, that he's listening to us? If we believe that he's a father, how would that change how we stand upon that and press down upon that? A little bit of a different one, Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. In the midst of all that was so broken for the people of God, we hear this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So in the midst of what is so lamentable, we we stand upon steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. Those are just two little examples, but you could find them all over the Bible. So when we turn to Genesis 18, think about what are the foundations of this prayer, of Abraham's prayer. The first really is his relationship with God. Not a relationship that Abraham himself initiated. You can go back to Genesis 12. God's the one who called to Abraham. And then Genesis 15, God's the one who really cut the covenant with Abraham. And even in this chapter, if you go back to chapter 18, verse 1, it says, and the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. So it's really a theophany. I mean, we we sort of blow by this. This is the Lord present (laughs) with Abraham. And the commentators say it's a pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus showing up in skin before he came uh, in the incarnation. Think about this. How many people in the Old Testament shared a meal 
with the Lord. You can go back a few verses and see what's happening there. How many people got a visit from the Lord to tell them that a child, a son was coming within the year? That happens earlier in chapter 18. And they're in their 90s. <laughs> Second Chronicles 20 verse 7 and Isaiah 41 verse 8 both mention Abraham as God's friend. Not many people in the Bible share that distinction. Genesis 18, 17, it says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? There's a deep relationship here. You think about, you know, when you're with your friends, if you're sitting down at lunch and say, uh, should I hide from you what I'm thinking? <laughs> should I hide from you what I'm about to do? I mean, the fact that you say that basically reveals you have a heart to tell them what you're about to do. God wants Abraham to know what's happening because there's a friendship there, there's a relationship there. So the relationship is a foundation. God's grace is a foundation. And his grace towards Abraham is revealed in his gracious promise to Abraham. Look at Genesis 18, 18. The Lord speaking, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Remembering Genesis 12 and the call and the promise to Abraham that through Abraham, really, God's salvation would come to the world. That's gracious. Abraham didn't deserve that. But then the other foundation is God's justice. And this is Abraham talking in Genesis 18, 25, when he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So Abraham has this sense that God will do what is right. He's righteous and just, and he's loving and he's gracious. So God tells Abraham that there's this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin is sort of rising up and crying out for judgment. Their sin's very grave, God says. And so Abraham stands upon the character of God and he pushes down and he prays. But it's a really interesting collision of things, isn't it? Because Abraham knows the Lord. He knows that the Lord is loving and gracious. Abraham hasn't been perfect. The Lord has been faithful. So Abraham knows in his own life that this is messy. How can the Lord be loving and gracious and righteous and just at the same time? To cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, to people like Abraham and you and me. And that's a question we'll consider more deeply in a few minutes. But for now, I just want us to see these foundations of prayer, that prayer happens at the intersection of who God is and the reality of our lives and what's going on in the world around us. You could say that prayer is really about who Christ is and our need or the needs of the world. So when we understand our helplessness and then when we see that God loves us and desires to help, we pray. If you're in Christ, you're a son of Abraham. You're a child of God. You're a friend of God. You know his love and grace. You know his righteousness and justice too. And you can stand upon these things and you can press down upon them as you bring bold prayers to him like Abraham. If we wanna pray well, we need to know God. We need to know ourselves. We need to know the world around us. That's a firm foundation. So that's the first thing, foundation of prayer. But how do we pray in the face of great evil? So I want you to think about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's really not the focus today. We're focusing more on the prayer, but there was great evil in Sodom and Gomorrah. And think about how Abraham related to the evil in these cities. And I want you to think about Dallas. There's great evil in our city. How do you relate to the evil in this city? So two questions. The first is, do we recognize the evil around us? 
In Genesis 13, 13, it says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We see the depth of their evil in Genesis 19. You could read that later. After this prayer, Genesis 19, what the men do uh, with the visitors who come and what they desire to do. Um, Abraham was aware of this evil, but what's interesting is it didn't stop him from praying for this place and its people. Do you know the evil in Dallas? Are you aware of it? Does it stop you from praying for this place and its people? So that's a question. Do we recognize the evil around us? But then the other question is, do we recognize the evil inside us? And note that it's usually easy to see the evil around us and harder to see the evil in us. If you think about Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, 10 through 13, says, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the Pharisee, the religious guy, sees the evil around him, <laughs> but not really inside him. It's pretty clear that the tax collector really sees the evil inside him as much as anything. So the Pharisee's proud. He's not humble. He's self-righteous. He's not actually righteous. His prayer is really a pat on his own back. He's not crying to God for mercy. He's not crying out to God for others. It's actually really interesting. The Pharisee doesn't ask for anything. He's good doesn't really need anything. So if we struggle to pray, just think maybe there's a chance there's a Pharisee inside here somewhere that we've lost the wonder of his calling, his grace, his fellowship, even being invited into his mission. We're good. We don't need anything. And what happens to the world out there doesn't really matter to us. We tend to live like the bad people are out there we need to avoid them. And if we pray, let's pray that God would get them. God would judge them. We think Sodom is out there, but there are so many passages in the Bible that remind us that the evil is really in here too. So let it sting a little bit, brothers. Left to ourselves, we're not better than Sodom and Gomorrah. And these are just two references to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, but there's actually many more. If you wanted to go do a search online, Isaiah 1 verse 9 if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Jesus himself in Matthew 10, verse 15, this is when he's sending his apostles out to go do ministry. And this is what he says to them about the towns that would reject their ministry. He says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So what am I trying to drive home? If we really know ourselves, if we really know that we're sinners without hope, save in the sovereign mercy of God, which is what our members say every time they join, if we've really experienced the love and grace of God, we should relate to the evil around us in a different way. Because in the face of great evil, there's really just a few responses. And I want to walk them down for you. Response one, we can do nothing. Abraham could have done nothing with Sodom and Gomorrah, that there's evil in our city, we can choose not to pray. We can ignore it, we can just go on with our lives and doing nothing may not seem malicious. Maybe we're just busy. I don't really have time to pray for other people. 
But doing nothing, as my mom used to say, is a choice. <laughs> and it has consequences. Over time, we do nothing and we harden our heart to the world. And we basically say, I don't care what happens to these wicked people. In the face of great evil is doing nothing, a Christ-like response. Response two, we can look out for ourselves and our people. So Abraham could have just worried about himself and about his nephew Lot. It would have been so easy just to pray, Lord, I hear you. These are wicked people. Do what you gotta do. But can we at least get Lot and his family out of there first? He doesn't pray that. It's so easy just to think of ourselves and our own interests and our own people. And our, our prayer life can actually become really selfish where we're more about bringing in our kingdom than praying for God's kingdom to come. So again, in the face of great evil is looking out for our own interests, a Christ-like response. Three, we can pray for judgment. Abraham could have jumped on board, prayed for God to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, Lord, you're right. Now just give them what they deserve. You know, turn it up. There's evil in our city and we can pray for God to bring his righteous judgment. Think about this was Jonah's posture <laughs> towards Nineveh. And that's why Jonah got so upset when he preached his lousy sermon. Go find his sermon, <laughs> it's pretty lousy. And then God actually did something and showed mercy and Jonah is angry because he doesn't like these people. He wants God to judge them. There are biblical precedents better than that for praying for judgment because there are sometimes evils so horrible that it's only natural to cry out to God, how long bring your justice. But whether it's people who look different or live different or believe differently or vote differently from us, in the face of great evil, is praying for judgment, the most Christ-like response. Let me read you something from a 17th century pastor named Thomas Goodwin. It's a little long, but I think it's important. He says, my brothers, though God is just, yet his mercy may in some respect said to be more natural to him than all acts of justice that God does show. I mean, vindictive justice. In these acts of justice, there's a satisfaction of an attribute yet there's a kind of violence done to himself in it. The scripture so expresses it. There's something in it that's contrary to him. I desire not the death of a sinner, quoting scripture. That is, I delight not simply in it for pleasure's sake. When he exercises acts of justice, it's for a higher end. It's not simply for the thing itself. There's always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that it is his nature and disposition, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. There's nothing at all in him that is against it. The act itself pleases him for itself. There's no reluctance in him. Therefore, in Lamentations 3.33, when he speaks of punishing, he says, he does not from his heart afflict nor grieve the children of men. But when he comes to speak of showing mercy, he says, he does it with his whole heart and with his whole soul, as the expression is in Jeremiah 32.41. And therefore, acts of justice are called his strange work and his strange act in Isaiah 28, 21. But when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul, end quote. So if God delights to show mercy, but he must be provoked and he's slow to anger, how should we be in the face of great evil? Do we wanna be quick to anger? Do we wanna be quick to call out for wrath? Do we want people to go to hell? I mean, think about what you're saying. Do we forget that apart from Christ, we deserve the same sentence? 
And do we realize that Christ praying for us is actually more amazing than Abraham praying for Sodom? Let that sink in. Response four, we can pray for the Lord to save the wicked. Like Abraham, we can lay ourselves out in prayer for the lost. Do we long for the Lord to save others as he saved us? This is the best, most Christ-like response. In the face of great evil, we can pray for the Lord to save people. So we get into Abraham's prayer and we see it's actually really fascinating. He doesn't do nothing. He doesn't just look out for himself or for Lot. He doesn't pray for judgment. He prays that the Lord would spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He actually cares about these people in these places. Do we care about the people and places in Dallas? Do we love this city? And not just for what we can squeeze out of it. So Abraham stands on his relationship with the Lord, his intimate friendship with the Almighty. Don't miss these little details in 1822. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. The men, the two men mentioned here who go on are referred to as angels in Genesis 19.1. So we have a party of the Lord and two angels. The two, two angels go to investigate the wicked cities. The Lord stays behind with Abraham and Abraham draws near, or you could say approaches the bench to the Lord and begins to wrestle him uh, in prayer. Do you ever get alone with the Lord? Now, away from the people, away from your phone and begin to talk with the Lord in prayer. Because when you have a deep friendship, you know how you can talk about anything? It's sort of like nothing is off limits. You can wrestle, you can make bold requests. That's exactly what's happening here. The Lord has shared what he's thinking with Abraham and now Abraham is responding in prayer. Prayer is responding. It's answering language. It's listening and responding. But notice there's no lofty language here. There's no these and thous. There's no 10 cent words. It's just Abraham bringing his heart before the Lord. In the face of great evil, how does he pray? He presses down on the Lord's love and grace and on his righteousness and justice. And what I want you to see is so fascinating is his angle. Surely the judge of all the earth is gonna do what's right. Surely, Lord, you love righteousness enough that you won't destroy a city if there are righteous people there, right? What if there are 50 righteous people there? Would you spare the city for 50? It's such an innovative argument. And this is not just a rote prayer. Abraham knew that for the sin of the many, or sorry, for the sin of the few, the many had been condemned. Think about Adam and Eve's sin imputed to humanity. Abraham comes at it from the other angle. If the sin of the few could condemn the many, could the righteousness of a few save the many? And the Lord says, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. All right, the Lord said, yes, might be good enough for us, right? It's not good enough for Abraham. Someone joked that Abraham's a man who won't take yes for an answer. So you notice he, he's got this beautiful mixture of humble and bold. I'm dust and ashes, but I'm coming again. You know, I've asked, I'm sorry, but I'm coming again. And uh, he's bold. What about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? God, what about 10? And the Lord says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And that's the end of the conversation between Abraham and the Lord. Verse 33, it says, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. And we know in chapter 19 that the Lord brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're focusing on the prayer. Are you satisfied at the end of the prayer? Abraham made these bold requests. The Lord said yes every time, but I'm not satisfied. I wanted Abraham to go one more round with God. 
Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I, I will speak again, but this once. Suppose one righteous man is found there. Will you spare the city for one righteous person who's in it? But Abraham didn't go there, and I want to know why. Maybe he thought you need at least 10 righteous people, you know, to be salt and light, to be a leavening influence. You know, if there's only a few, it's not gonna work out. There's some biblical precedent to say that. There's this fascinating passage in Ezekiel 14. Listen to this, Ezekiel 14, 12 through 14. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. <laughs> Daniel, Job, and Noah, if just those three men were there, wouldn't be enough. It's really fascinating. Later, the Jews would decide that a city must have at least 10 men in order to have a synagogue. That's not really in Abraham's mind at this time, but that is interesting. Maybe Abraham didn't ask about one righteous person because he knew deep down there wasn't one. Whatever the reason, <laughs> to me, it feels like a story without an ending, you know, like a prayer without an amen. But Abraham was onto something big because I think he felt the tension between praying to a God who is loving and holy. So without compromising his holiness, how can a loving God save sinners and spare a wicked world? So Abraham had the idea. Perhaps for the sake of the righteous, God could spare the wicked. He had the concept, but he didn't have the Christ. And that leads to the last question, how do we pray to a God who's perfect love and perfect holiness? And the answer in God's wisdom is Christ on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, as you know, is the perfect demonstration of God's love and his holiness. We see his perfect love for sinners, that he would do this, that he would lay down his life for us. And we see his perfect holiness as he pours out his wrath for sin on his son. Paul captures this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, through the lens of righteousness. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So compare Abraham with Jesus, the true and better Abraham, and you see a breathtaking picture. So Abraham lived in proximity to a wicked city. Jesus lived at the right hand of his father, but he chose to come and enter into this wicked world and live right here, move right into the neighborhood with us. Now, Abraham saw the cup of wrath that God was about to pour out on his neighbors, and he basically said, Lord, if it's possible, let the cup pass by these people. You know, give them more time. Not my will, but yours be done. But Jesus saw the cup of wrath about to be poured out on him and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus didn't simply intercede. He actually intervened and drank the cup in our place. He drank the cup of wrath that we might drink the cup of salvation. So Abraham was the friend of God who prayed for wicked people. Jesus was the son of God who actually died for the wicked, like you, like me. So Jesus answers the problem that Abraham was trying to solve because of the one righteous person, the many can be saved by faith in him. So do you know this Jesus? Do you trust in who he is 
and what he has done for you. What would happen if we really do know Jesus? Would we be proud? Of course not, because salvation is all grace. Whether we're living more like the wicked in Sodom, irreligious, or the wicked in Jerusalem, religious, we have no grounds for boasting. We should be men humbled by grace with hearts bursting with gratitude. We shouldn't be proud, we should be humble. Should we be cold toward the world around us? Of course not. Especially if we see ourselves as the chief of sinners, we know what his grace can do. If he can save me, if he can bring me to life, if he can redeem and restore me, then no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And if we've tasted it, of course we want other people to taste it, as many people as possible. So think about what kind of life that would unleash in prayer. A life of humble, bold, intercessory prayer. Prayers like Abraham's. Prayers like Jesus' prayers. And then a life of humble, bold love for the sake of the people around us, for the sake of the Lord, for his glory. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus lives to make intercession for his people. Think about that. What is Jesus doing right now? He lives, he's risen. He lives to intercede for me. Wouldn't it be like Christ to live to intercede for others? Do we pray for sinners? for those who don't know Jesus, not just for the people who we like and seem like good prospects, but for the wicked, for those who seem far gone. Think about this. Are we expecting the Lord to answer prayers and save people if we're never praying that? Maybe we don't expect him to do that. In 1 Timothy 2, verses one through six, Paul presses down on Jesus as the savior and the mediator and calls us to pray. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. By God's grace, will we make prayer a top priority in our daily lives? To know him, to enjoy him, and then to be part of his redemptive work in the world through prayer. I just wanna say as I close it, realize that prayer <laughs> is a battleground for spiritual warfare. If you never think about that, why is it hard to pray? <laughs> if you never think about that, you're already a casualty of the war. You just don't know it. Think about how important prayer is, that the Lord is calling us to pray, that he wants us to, to commune with him in prayer. And in the mystery of his sovereign rule, I don't know how it works, but somehow he's taking our prayers into account as he weaves his plan together. So what would the devil's strategy be? Keep them from praying at all. One. <laughs> Two, if they pray, make it boring. Make it hard. Make it self-centered. Make it about them. Make it where they don't want to keep praying. <laughs> make us forget that what we're actually doing is communing with God and then praying for his kingdom to come. In Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about the armor of God, do you know how he concludes? At the end, after talking about all the pieces of armor, he says, pray, praying at all times in the spirit 
with all prayer and supplication. So we're studying these prayers of the Bible this semester, but don't let it just be that. Don't let it just be a study, an intellectual exercise. Now hear the call to be strong in the Lord, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, to put on the armor of God and to do that by praying. Ask yourself, if the Lord answered my prayers, the prayers that I keep coming back to, would it really make a difference? Pray that he would give us grace to pray bold and dependent prayers, prayers that would make Satan shudder. It's too late for Sodom. You think about that? The Lord judged that place and the people thousands of years ago, but it's not too late for Dallas, for the people and the places in our city. So the Lord's giving us another day to intercede for family and friends and neighbors and strangers and the wicked. Christ's death on the cross was enough to redeem the most wicked sinner you can imagine. So are we praying for the sake of his glory? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your love and your grace. We praise you for your holiness and justice. And we praise you that these things all come together at the cross. And we see that you made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So we thank you for the power of the cross to save the many through the sacrifice of the one. And we pray that you would give us a heart of love for the people around us, for the city, for our neighbors, that we might lay ourselves out for them in prayer not because we think that somehow our prayer is going to accomplish it, but because we know where the power comes from, it comes from you. And so we pray that you would do a great work and that your kingdom would come. Lord, give us a humble boldness. Lord, remind us that like Abraham, we are your friends and you've told us what you're doing and you've invited us to come and join in the work through prayer. So bless these conversations, Lord, teach us to pray and go with us today as we abide in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.